0: Got a nice full house this morning, and that's really good as we uh, really dig into our summer sermon series on prophecy. Last week, I introduced it all, kind of gave you a roadmap of where we're going, what we hope to accomplish this summer, and as well as eight reasons why it's important for us as a body, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, to To spend time studying prophecy, biblical prophecy. The category of systematic theology is called eschatology. Eschatology, it comes from two Greek words, eschatos, which means last, and logos, which means word. And eschatology is the word about last things, if you'd like to put it together that way. So it's about the last things, it's about the future. It's about what the Bible has to say is yet to unfold in the sovereign plan of God as he draws to a conclusion his universe. It's going someplace. It's not out of control. It is absolutely under his control, and he is taking it exactly where he wants it to be, that it would come to a conclusion that would bring him maximum glory. As we begin studying this summer in this vast topic, I think it'd be important for me to just begin by acknowledging that there are many divergent views out there with regard to biblical prophecy or the doctrine of eschatology. I'm aware of those views and I have studied a a number of them in some detail. I'm certainly not an expert in all of them and wouldn't claim to be. I do acknowledge the many divergent views. I also acknowledge that many, many good and godly men teach these varying and divergent views. And um, all I can say is that it is our conviction, uh, the uh, doctrinal statement of Foothill Bible Church, which lays out a rather specific eschatology. It is our conviction that that eschatology is what is taught in the Word of God. That is, that it best fits all of the facts as we can understand them and pull them together. There is a a certain level of uncertainty that I would readily grant you in the sense that these things are yet to come. So we don't have the benefit of history to look backwards in time and to see exactly what did occur. We are looking forward for sure. But we're not in a sea of subjectivity. The Bible is clear. It has been written by God to be understood by men. And it is profitable for us to understand it. Now it requires us to do a lot of hard work. And so this summer series is going to require that of us. Uh, Quite a bit of hard work It's going to require us to think our way through it. Maybe one other, just a comment with regard to the divergent views and the divergent men who teach these views. This is probably the uh, downside, I would say, of the the media world in which we live that is that there is access to everyone all the time 24 7 to uh, an incredible amount of of biblical teaching it just can pour in and many of you have it pour in in your podcasts that uh, come to you from all your favorite superstars in the evangelical world and um, and I appreciate these men I've learned a lot from many of them Uh, But the downside, if I can say it that way, is that they don't pastor Foothill Bible Church. They are not responsible for your souls. Okay? I am, the elders and I, are responsible before God for your souls. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. So we take very seriously that responsibility, that charge. And uh, as we teach the scriptures, we are teaching them to you as God has given us the ability to understand them. Okay, so when your favorite Bible teacher or another favorite Bible teacher uh, holds to something different, uh, I would love to talk to you about that. But please understand that um, they're responsible before God for the flock that God has placed them among. We are responsible to God for the flock that he has placed us among. Okay. And when we get to heaven, they can apologize for being wrong, <laughs> all right? So uh, we, we don't come into the pulpit uh, just throwing our hands in the air and saying, I don't know. It's all going to work out in the end, okay? It is all going to work out in the end, for sure. But we do believe God has given it to us clearly enough that it can be understood, given hard work. All right, so here we go. Last week, I introduced to you seven topics seven prophetic events that await fulfillment. This is the framework around which we're going to organize our summer series. All of this springing out of chapter 11 of the book of Romans and Paul's statement there that when the fullness of the Gentiles come, all Israel will be saved, okay? And I will go I will eventually end up back there again, okay? I'm going to do a Doug bookman for those who know him, and that is I'm going to spin off into who knows where, but by the end of the summer, we'll be back to Romans 11 and verse 25 and 26, okay? Fair enough? All right, so here they are, seven prophetic events awaiting fulfillment. Number one was the rapture of the church. Number two was the rise of the Antichrist. Number three, the retribution of God. Number four, the return of the king. Number five, the reign of Christ. Number six, the rejection of his rule. And number seven, the remaking of heaven and earth. That is your skeleton, that is your framework. Okay, so this morning we're going to begin together looking at that first event, the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church. And as we begin this study together here, there are several uh, significant problems that confront us right up front. So we best deal with those as well. Okay? Okay. Number one, the terminology of prophecy may be unfamiliar to you. It's very likely that there are going to be vocabulary words, technical words, that I will use that are going to be unfamiliar, at least to some of you. And I acknowledge that fact, and I will do my best to define them as we go. It will be my intent to define these words as, as we go through the process, okay? Okay. But if I uh, don't define a particular word and you're not sure what that word is and you can't get it from the context, then send me an email, please, and ask me. And I would be more than happy to respond to you. I will respond to you and I will define the term for you there. Okay? So there are going to be a lot of words. I can't help that. I mean, the Bible uses big words. Okay? So, but if there's, a, if there's something you're not sure of and I don't define it for you, you ask and we'll be happy to do it. That's our first problem. That one's more easily resolved. The second one is a little more difficult. The second problem is, is that prophecy is, is the end of the story. It is the last chapter of the book, as it were. And therefore, it presupposes a genuine or, or, or general familiarity with the story up to that point. Meaning that prophecy assumes, understand prophecy, you have to have a basic understanding of the Bible. If you don't have a basic understanding of the Bible and where it is going, then when you get to the end of the story, it's not going to make a lot of sense to you. That is a problem. Beyond that, prophecy is interwoven all through the Old and New Testament. It is all over the place. And we are going to have to go all over the place to follow the themes. We're going to be back in the Old Testament. We're going to be in the pages of the Old Testament where they're still white and still stuck together. Okay? And I can't help that because there's a lot of rich truth there. You're going to have to, we're going to have to go there. And we're going to be in the New Testament as well. So we're going to be all over the Bible. I will do my best to call out page numbers in the Pew Bible if, um, for those of you who don't bring your Bible with you. Okay? I recommend you do bring a Bible. Let me just say that. Bring, please bring a Bible. Get familiar with the Bible. Learn where these things are in your Bible, your personal Bible. But if you don't have a Bible and you're using a pew Bible, I will make an attempt to call out page numbers. I'm not going to be able to call them all out, but I will call out at least the significant ones. If you're not fast enough to get where we're going, don't get lost. Just write down the verse reference and you can check it on your own later. Maybe I can also suggest to you that you might want to invest in a set of Bible tabs. Give yourself a summer present, okay, my birthday's today. Give yourself a birthday present on my account, okay, not on my tab, but on my account. And uh, I see you all going over to the bookstore and say, Pastor David said, you know, Bible tabs are on the house. So get yourself a set of Bible tabs and install them in your personal Bible so you can find your way quickly through the scriptures until you have come to the place where you just kind of know where stuff is, okay? Because you're going to have to follow us, along the way that's the second problem the third problem and this one is a real conundrum to me and that is that each of the seven events are interrelated and i was sitting in my office this week thinking about this and praying about this lord help me what in the world have i done and uh this is like a this is like a pile of fishing line okay in one sense and that these things are all intertangled with each other and they all presuppose to one degree or another an understanding of each other in order to make heads or tails out of them and this is the one that probably concerns me the most this uh, particular obstacle how are we going to overcome this and so here's my plan hang in there okay hang in there that's that's my plan for you is is to hang in there uh, be here week in and week out. I know it's summertime, I know there are vacations, and clearly, you know, when vacation time comes, you take a vacation. But, but be here and, and follow along, and I guess I'll be so bold as to say that if you're not here, uh, download the sermon off the website and listen to it, because it is going to build, and it's going to build sequentially, and, I'm, and uh, something that might be a little cloudy in your mind this week, it's very likely the next week that we're gonna, when we're going to come back at it again from a different angle, it's going to help to clear that up. And I, I just don't know any other way around this because of the interlaced and interconnected nature of the various events we're talking about. Slowly, I do believe the lights will come on for you, okay? We're studying this together. We're going to learn together. I'm so looking forward to this summer series. It's going to force me to, um, to do a lot more reading in an area that I, I do enjoy and have done uh, quite a measure of reading in, but there's a lot more books in my library that need to be read, and uh, this will force me to do it. So we're going to learn together as we go through this. I think my comfort in all of this, this, uh, this obstacle of understanding, is that the Holy Spirit of God wants us to understand His Word. Amen? Amen. He has committed himself, he desires that we understand the Word of God, and he has committed himself to to being actively involved in our lives to make sure that process happens. So we've got God at work that we might understand His Word, and so uh, I can come here before you without concern that I'm going to bungle it so badly that you won't be able to understand it because the Spirit of God is ultimately your teacher. Okay. Maybe one other observation before we plunge in, and that's um, the Apostle Paul was not afraid of the topic of eschatology, the topic of last things. In fact, in several of his epistles, he writes to churches, churches primarily comprised of Gentiles, that is, those that are recent to the faith, those that are not steeped in the Old Testament, and he writes to them about these very doctrines. In particular, I think of the church at Thessalonica. Paul's church founded early in his church planting ministry in Greece, a Gentile church, a church which the book of Acts tells us that he only reasoned in the synagogue for three Sabbaths. We know uh, that his time there was short, maybe as long as six months, but certainly no longer than that, and quite possibly a fair bit shorter than that. And yet the Apostle Paul handled with those first century, first generation converts without benefit of being steeped in their Old Testament some very serious issues with regard to prophecy in the last times. That gives me encouragement because if the Apostle Paul was not afraid of teaching the full counsel of God in that context, then we shouldn't be afraid of it either, okay? We have much more advantage than they did, believe me. You've got your own personal copy of the Word of God sitting on your lap, right? To look up. The reference, to read. You have the Spirit of God that indwells you, illuminate you, that you might understand His Word, and you have the benefit, at least certainly the majority of you, have the benefit of some measure of accumulated Christian teaching and doctrine. So we got a lot. Not only that, we have the completed canon of God. Okay, We have the end of the story all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. So we got a lot of advantages to help us in this study. So here we go. Are you ready to plunge in? The book of Revelation, the book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament written by the apostle John, the last living apostle, written sometime around AD 95. So we have the final, you don't need to turn there, okay? I'll tell you when you've got to turn, okay? <laughs> um, I mean, you can if you want to, but uh, this is the last written record from the last living apostle. Written at the end of the first century, let's turn there, and at the end of that, uh, I wasn't even going to say it. none of this is in my notes. And here we go. At the end of this book, chapter 22, verse 18, he declares prophecy done. Complete, finished, fulfilled, fine, no more. He says, verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away from his part, from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. It's over. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And it's to be found in the Word of God. So everything we need is before us. It's on your lap. All we've got to do is work hard at it. Now, Revelation, the book of Revelation, is a, a, um, a book with a fair amount of mystery in it. There's no question. In fact, it, it has uh, confounded or did confound uh, some of the greatest Expositors of the church of the Reformation period. People like Calvin and Luther and Zwingli, and they were so focused on the battle of the recovery of the gospel of justification by grace through faith alone that they never really had time to seriously approach the Book of Revelation. Furthermore, they were so stuck in their Augustinian theological system, the system they had inherited from Augustine, from the 4th century, which saw the church as the replacement of the nation of Israel. They were so caught in that paradigm that when they came to the book of Revelation, they threw their hands in the air and they said, I don't know what it means. Nobody can figure it out. And they left it untouched. But we've been able to stand on the shoulders of those that have gone before us. And we, there is much that we can understand about this book. The book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19 of that book, detail a time of unprecedented horror on earth's inhabitants. It is the time when God pours out his judgments upon those who have refused the gracious offer of salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is the wrath of God poured out upon His creation. And according to the biblical accounts, this period of wrath, this period of unprecedented judgment, known as the tribulation period, lasts seven years. Seven years. And it grows progressively more intense more horrible, more catastrophic, as judgment after judgment fall like hammer blows upon this planet and upon those who have set themselves in opposition to Christ. The book lays out in a series of seven seals, followed by seven trumpets, followed by seven bowls of judgment each Progressively, as I say, uh, stronger, more catastrophic than that which goes before. We are persuaded that the Scriptures teach that the church, the church will not enter into that horrific time of tribulation. That that is not our destiny that we will, in fact, be delivered from it by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. This is what is known as a pre-tribulation rapture. Pre-tribulation, before the tribulation rapture. This deliverance, or the rapture, is a term that comes from a Latin word, rapturo, which is the translation of a Greek word, harpazo, which means to seize, to catch up, or to snatch away. So the word rapture, and you'll hear it a lot, and I'm, most of you probably, it's, you're pretty conversant with this terminology, but it means to catch up, to snatch away, or to seize the rapture. The concept here is that there is a sudden and irresistible catching away of the church snatched before the storm is the title of one book. It's called a mystery by the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 51 to 52, a mystery that is that it was something previously unknown that is now only known because it has been revealed through God's spokesman. The idea has no parallel in the Old Testament at all. The concept nowhere appears in the Old Testament. It is a New Testament concept. This rapture, this catching up, this snatching away before the storm. It is only revealed in the New Testament. And the reason it is only revealed in the New Testament is because it only applies to the church. The church. And the church is a product of the new covenant implemented at Pentecost, Jew and Gentile in one body, something that was not possible until Christ had ascended back to the right hand of the Father, right? And sent the Spirit as he had promised. So the rapture, the catching away, the, the catching up, the, the snatching away of the church is a New Testament concept unrevealed in the Old Testament only for the new because it only applies to the church. All right, that's all background, all background. There are ten reasons, we've been able to distill this down to ten reasons why we believe that this catching away, this rapture, occurs before the tribulation time, before the seven years of catastrophe that comes upon this earth. This is called a pre-tribulational rapture, and there are ten reasons why we believe this to be the correct understanding of Scripture. That is, it is, the, it is the understanding that fits the evidence best. It has the least problems. It has the least passages that, are, that uh, give it difficulty. All the other possible positions and I'll just spit them out there for you that are more conversant in them there is a there is a mid-tribulational rapture that is at the three and a half point there is a pre-wrath rapture which is the idea that it occurs into the second half of the tribulation there is a post-tribulational rapture which says that it occurs at the end of the tribulation we think all of those problems held by a number of of good and godly men all have fatal flaws and that the pre-tribulational rapture handles the evidence the best, has the least problems, and has no fatal flaws. Okay? No fatal flaws. So let's begin our reasoning together. Let us reason together. The first, we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture because it preserves the doctrine of imminence. It preserves the doctrine of Immanence. They are in your handout here. I've written them down for you. The English word eminent comes from a Latin verb, and it means to overhang or project. To overhang or project. Thus, the English word carries the idea of hanging over one's head. Something hanging over your head. If something is imminent, it is hanging over your head. It is ready to overtake you. It is close at hand. That's kind of the the idea of the word imminent. Now listen carefully here with me. An imminent event is an event that is close in hand in the sense that it can overtake you at any time. It's imminent if if it can overtake you at any time. Other things may occur first. But nothing must necessarily happen first before the imminent event occurs. Do you understand the distinction I'm making? It can can overtake you at any moment. Nothing has to precede it before it can come. Other things may precede it, but they're not necessary to come first for an event to be imminent. Imminent does not mean shortly. Because that implies a time period in which the event must take place. Now this is an important concept to understand because the New Testament, we'll look at a lot of passages here in a minute. The New Testament is very clear that the return of Christ for his church at the rapture is an imminent event. That means that it could come at any time. It could overtake you at any time. And that promise and hope has been the church's promise and hope for two thousand years that means every generation of believers lives with the same imminent hope the same possibilities the same reality that christ could return for them at any time at any time maybe i can illustrate it this way drawing upon the birth of my granddaughter just a few hours ago uh, Stacy's labor pains were imminent. That is, that they could overtake her at any time. We didn't know when, but we knew for sure that nothing must happen first before her labor began. She could have, it could have been another week. It didn't have to be today. It could have been another week before the labor pains began, but it didn't have to be another week. Do you understand the difference? And I'm trying to point out to you here. Okay. So the return of Jesus Christ is an event that can overtake you as a follower of Christ at any time. It's always right there. It's right there. Now, the record of the New Testament with regard to the belief and eminency of the return of Christ is everywhere. It is absolutely all over the New Testament. So here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll move through these. I thought I was going to get through five. There's not even not Jeremy's sitting here shaking his head. So young, he said, "You're going to get through one." <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 15. if you're using a Pew Bible, by the way, uh, they're there for you to use. Uh, page 11:52. First Corinthians chapter 15, just verses 51 and 52. First Corinthians 15: 51 and 52. Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, church is primarily Gentile in orientation. Church has only been in existence for a very short time. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. Remember I said that this, the, the uh, rapture of, uh, of the church is a mystery. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. This idea here that we shall not all sleep, he's speaking in the context, big context of 1 Corinthians 15, is a resurrection context. He's talking about death and resurrection of the believer. And he's saying to the believers there in the first century that they are not all going to die. But they are all going to be changed. That is, that Paul was fully convinced under the inspiration of the Spirit of God that Christ could return at any moment and should he return, they won't all die. Now, we're 2,000 years removed, aren't we? Did Christ return? No. Did some of them die? Yes. Yes. And thus we arrive at the conundrum of God. Maybe I should acknowledge this as we begin together. Every time we we do theology together, every time that that we seek to understand God, the finite bumps into the infinite and we come to a place where we can't go beyond. That is, we arrive at a place where God has only told us so much and the rest he has concealed for himself. This is just another one of those doctrines. And this shouldn't trouble you because uh, you live in this tension all the time. If anyone would like to sit down and explain to me how Jesus Christ was 100% man, fully human, and 100% God. If you'd like to explain that to me and work out all the kinks and all the implications, I'd be happy for you to try. The church has been working on it for 2,000 years, and they've arrived at a formulation of the Christology that is the, the, the word about Christ, and they've said, this is true, he's human, this is true, he's divine. How do they fit together? We don't really know. Would you like to explain to me the concept of eternity? Would you like to explain to me the concept of God's full and absolute sovereignty and man's human responsibility? That is, that the will of man and the will of God, how do they work together? Would you like to explain that to me? Would you like to explain to me how God is triune, the triune God? Or maybe you'd like to explain to me how he spoke everything into existence? Or how would you like to explain to me how he regenerates dead sinners and brings them to life? I mean, we can go anywhere you want to go in the Bible, any aspect of theology that you want to approach, and you're going to come to a place where you're going to have to stop at that moment and say, I don't know. The Bible says it. It is the Word of God. I believe it. Like the old fundamentalists used to say, right? God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Okay, that's where we are. So the doctrine of imminence, woven into the New Testament, I'll show you more, provides the expectation for the first century believer and every believer who reads the words of the apostles to go forward that this is a this is a reality for them too. Give you another Philippians chapter four, verse five. I'm just going to read this one to you. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. Philippians 4, 5. Or you can turn to the right to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thess chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, page 1181. If you're using a pew Bible. Paul writes there to the church at Thessalonica, verse 9. For they themselves, that is others, report about us what kind of a reception we had with you this church at Thessalonica how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead that is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come why would they wait for his son from heaven if they knew there was going to be at least 2,000 years before he came because they didn't they didn't know and in fact, their expectation is just the opposite, that it could be any time. Any time. Titus, chapter 2, verse 13. Titus 2, 13. The grace of God, verse 11, has appeared, instructing us, verse 12, that we might, verse 13, be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. We are to be looking for the blessed hope and appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is something that Paul writes to to Titus to teach those on the Isle of Crete that they're supposed to be doing, they're supposed to be looking for the return of Christ. James, chapter 5, verses 7 and 9. Be patient, James says, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Be looking for the coming of the Lord. The judge is standing right at the door. 1 John 2, verse 28, And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. The Apostle John is writing there to the believers and he is saying to them that they should expect the coming of Christ and not shrink away when it happens. There's that expectation for them. It could be at any time. Be ready. It could be at any time. And the last one is in Revelation chapter 22, page 1242. You're using a pew Bible. Revelation chapter 22, verse 7. Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I'm coming quickly. Now listen carefully here. From God's perspective, the date and time of the return of Christ is fixed. It's fixed. Acts chapter 1, verse 7. Jesus answers his disciples when they say, Lord, is it now that you're going to reestablish or establish your kingdom? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. That is, the return of Jesus Christ will not occur a moment sooner or a moment later than, than God the Father has sovereignly determined before the foundation of the earth as to when this event will occur. It is fixed in time, it is not floating but but from a human perspective it could be at any time it could be at any time if all listen to me now if all or any part of the tribulation period that seven-year period must occur before christ returns to rapture his church then the concept of imminency is destroyed If something must happen first before he can return, that is that if if half of the tribulation must come first before he returns, if the whole tribulation must come first before he returns, then it's no longer an imminent event. It's an event that's delayed by at least an observable three and a half years, seven years, whatever. Okay? I'm going to need a lot of reinforcement here from you. Nod to me. Nod to me. Okay? The return of Christ is imminent. Maranatha. Our Lord, come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Right? That's how the book of Revelation closes. Snatch us away. Before I have to finish this sermon. (laughs) Take us. Please. All believers live with that hope. It is the blessed hope of the return of Christ for his church. It is, as we talked about last week, a purifying hope. A purifying hope. Second reason. Second reason. First is because of the imminency. Secondly, we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture because it provides comfort to the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, page 1183. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the premier passage teaching the rapture of the church. This is the preeminent passage. The dominant theme of this passage is comfort. Verse 18, you see where it ends. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Let me just read the passage to you, beginning in verse 13. Paul's writing here, and he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that is, the fellow believers who have died, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, Paul is bringing comfort to a, to a group of believers who are concerned that their loved ones have died and have, are going to miss out on the return of Jesus Christ for his church. They already believe in the resurrection, as is taught in Daniel chapter twelve, verses one and two. So they already know there's going to be a resurrection. That's not their point. The point is that they are concerned, they are concerned that they are going to miss out on the return of Christ for his church. They are also concerned about the, the tribulation, the judgment that is coming. And so Paul writes to them here to comfort their hearts. And what he writes to them and says is, don't worry about it. Those who are in Christ, verse 16, if you see that, those that are in Christ, which tells you it is the church, only the church can be in Christ, are going to be caught up together with him in the air. Those that have died and those that remain alive together are going to be caught up together to meet Christ in the air. Now listen, if the prospect for the Thessalonian believers was seven years of intense suffering in the purifying fires of tribulation, as one writer put it, then I fail to see how that would provide any comfort at all to these people. If what's... Facing the church is seven years of hard times, and what kind of an encouragement is it to say that the dead are not going to escape? They're not going to miss out. It would be better to be dead. If hard times are coming on the church, if the rapture of the church occurs at the end of the seven years of horrific judgment on the earth, then the dead in Christ are better off. But the comfort comes in the fact that the dead are not going to miss the return of Christ and those that are living are going to be translated to join them together at the same time and they're going to escape. They're going to escape. I mean, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if the, if the rapture of the church occurs after the judgment time, I'd rather be dead. Amen? Amen? The comfort here, the comfort here is not Don't worry folks, gonna be really you think it's bad now, it's gonna get really bad. The comfort is you're not gonna go through it. You're not gonna go through it. Now I'm not done with this passage, we're gonna be back to it a bunch of times, okay? Let me just leave it at that for now. Take a stab at another one. Verse or um, third reason. We believe in a pre-tribulation rapture because Christians are not destined for wrath. Just turn over a page, chapter 5, verse 9. Paul says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has not destined us for wrath. The wrath of God is not like human wrath. Human wrath is frequently uncontrolled and irrational anger. That is not what the Bible describes as the wrath of God. The wrath of God is a settled, passionate anger of the Creator against sin and rebellion among his creatures. It is an act of His will. It's not he doesn't fly off the handle in a rage. Okay? It is a very settled, a very fought-through, a very passionate, burning anger against His creation that is in rebellion against Him. According to the Bible, that wrath of God is most fully and completely expressed in a place called the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20. Known in our culture, our colloquialisms, as hell. That is where it is most fully and most completely expressed. But, now listen to me, but it, the wrath of God is temporally poured out on earth's inhabitants during a seven-year period of time we call the tribulation. It is the down payment, if I can say it that way, of the wrath of God upon the world in rebellion against Him. There would be no way to understand the the eternal and final wrath of God in the lake of fire without the illustration of the temporal wrath of God in the seven years of tribulation. That provides... An illustration, a down payment, an explanation that is a little more comprehensible for us of what is ultimately in store for those who reject Christ. The Old Old Testament illustration, by the way, of the wrath of God upon creation in rebellion against Him is the flood. It is the flood. When He washed the planet clean. But in the New Testament, we are given this period of time. It is the the breaking forth. It is the the intrusion of God into His creation in a series of judgments. These judgments are unleashed progressively. Revelation chapter 6, page 1229, Revelation 6. They are progressively released by the breaking of seven seals. We'll get back to this. We'll talk later about what the seven seals mean, all that. We don't have time now. But as these seals are broken, each seal that is broken unleashes a greater level of intensity of the wrath of God as he begins to progressively pour it out on the planet. They are temporally poured out. They begin through the agency of four horsemen, as it's given to us here in chapter 6. Verse 1, "...I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with the voice of thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse..." And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. That is, there is a leader to arise who will begin to subjugate the world and pull it all together into one world empire with him as the ruler of it all. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, that men should slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. Verse 5, And when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard, as it were, a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine that is there is famine that is beginning to come across the earth the price of food skyrockets seven and he when he broke the fourth seal i heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying come and i looked and behold an ashen horse and he who sat on it had the name death and hades was following him and authority was given to him Or to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Progressively, you see the judgments beginning to be poured out. At this early stage, they're being poured out through the agency of mankind. Eventually, they will become poured out by the direct intervention of God himself. That is through all kinds of, of what we would call natural disasters supernaturally given this is this is this is like god using babylon to chastise israel god used a nation right a pagan nation and a pagan king to pour out his wrath and his chastisement on his people israel the babylonians were his were his rod of correction is wrought of punishment and so here in the beginning of this seven year period as it progressively intensifies it it originates through the agency of man himself and by the time it's over there's barely anyone left and in fact jesus said if god had not shortened those days if he had not limited it to seven years there would be no one who would survive We are not destined for wrath. Now the promise that we're going to escape the wrath of God here doesn't mean the church is exempt from tribulation. Some people try to throw that as a counter argument and say, Well, the you know, the, the history of the church and the scriptures clearly teach that there's persecution, there's always been persecution, there's always going to be persecution. I agree. I agree. Plenty of places. John 15, verses 18 to 20, 2 Timothy 3:12, 12, 1 Peter 4, 12 to 16. The church will be persecuted. It will suffer trials. It has. It will. We're going to as well. But those are not the same as the eschatological, the last things wrath of God that begins to be poured out through is unveiled for us in the book of Revelation, beginning in chapter 6, and as they say, progressively getting stronger and stronger and stronger. The tribulation the church has felt, the tribulation the church is going through right now in other parts of the world have, are nothing compared to the wrath of God contained in the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. When we come back to that another time, We'll fill it out a little more fully. And that takes us through three. Oh, well, that's three the doctrine of eminency, the comfort that it brings to the believers, and the reality that we have been promised that we will not suffer. The wrath of God. The wrath of God, let me ask you this question. The wrath of God against his children was satisfied where? On the cross of Jesus Christ. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. God's wrath for you has been extinguished. If you have placed your full and saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. But if you haven't, if you are here with us this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then the wrath of God, the scripture says, still abides on you. It it hangs over you like a sword of Damocles. It could fall at any moment. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9 and in verse 27 that it's appointed unto men to die once, and then comes judgment. That is, there are no second chances. When you die, your fate is sealed. And no man knows the time of his death, does he? No man knows when his time is. You don't know if you have a tomorrow. None of us do. That's why the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to make peace with your Creator through the gift that He has offered in the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we receive that gift? The Bible tells us it is by faith. We give up on our own efforts. We declare spiritual bankruptcy. That is, that we have nothing to offer back to our Creator that would in any way cause Him to look favorably upon us. We have nothing. What will a man give in exchange for his own soul, the prophet says? What gift do you have that you can give to God in exchange for your own soul? Nothing. Nothing. But God has provided a gift for you. It is his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who went to that cross as we sang earlier. He suffered, he died. He rose again. And if you will by faith embrace that sacrifice as your own trusting in His death for you His righteous life to become your righteousness as you're you're united to Him by faith. And the Bible says you'll be saved. You will no longer dread the wrath of God. You can have that gift right now right here right where you're sitting. Just close your eyes and you speak to God. You call out to Him to have mercy upon you, to save you. The Bible says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God's calling somebody right now. Ron, as you come and lead us, let me pray first. Don't walk out today. Don't walk out today the way you came in. Be changed. Father, thank you for the, your scriptures. Thank you, Lord, that, that your word is true. Thank you that it is powerful to save. Thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit who resides within us and enables us to be able to understand what you have written. Lord, we understand so much, and our obedience level is so small in comparison. We, we pray as well, Father, that you would enable us this week to put into practice that which we know. Our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ can return for us at any time. The Scriptures clearly say that, and so we want to be found about the Master's business. Work in our hearts, Lord. Change us where we need to be changed. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.